1: I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This show, we'll be talking the U.S. men's national team window grade, if you will, Michael Bradley, Neymar, SoFi, Anvil, MLS Decision Day, Swag Giveaway, U.S. Soccer Rushmore, Frozen Grapes, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossier, soccer savant and a Fox Soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire! Mossy, how are you doing on this Wednesday, October
2: 18th in the year 2023? Doing well. I love a good Twitter space as much as anyone, but it is good to be back in the studio.
1: Yes, it is good to see you. We are back in our familiar confines here, uh, sounding and looking great. Thank you uh, to everyone for joining us, whether you're listening or whether you are watching. Uh, There's still plenty to talk about. And as you mentioned, uh, if you want a um, instant reaction, if you will, to the Ghana game, we did put out a... uh, X Spaces, I guess it's called now. Uh, live pod that should have shown up in your feed. We'll talk a little bit about that at the beginning here. But um, first off, you watch anything uh, interesting?
2: One thing I watched this past weekend was the Gold finale, and based on the excited text I received from you, it sounds like you watched it as well.
1: I did. You know, I was a little put off because I had thought that the six—I think it's six episodes—were uh, done with the gold. It's called the. Gold. It's on Paramount Plus. You had recommended it and you were just finishing up evidently. I thought it was done, but I waited a week uh, after watching the first five and then realizing that there was another one. And so again, the man had me there. And so I waited the week. I watched it. I, I will say that uh, I I was not as impressed as I thought I was going to be. I did not I did not think that the characters were that interesting. I actually didn't think that the story was that interesting, especially the way that, not, not you, but even when you read the um, the synopsis of it, they give you the idea that this is going to be some master type of um, crime that happens that fundamentally changes the way that crimes are investigated in the future. And at the end, I, I didn't get that. And, and to be fair, it was very complex. And so you're going to have to be able to break it down. I don't think they did a good job of doing that. Um, so all in all, I'm not giving it a thumbs up, um, but I did finish it.
2: Did I misinterpret your text? You you texted me the gold finale exclamation point.
1: You did. You misinterpreted my text. And that's why in this day and age where <laughs> so much can be misinterpreted, actual face-to-face human contact and interaction is the gold standard. The gold standard. So yeah, I mean, look, people out there might disagree uh, that have watched it. And some, I'm not saying don't watch it, but I, for example, I liked the, uh, what was the uh, the offer a whole lot better. And it was, they were all, I mean, there were two different types of, mini-series, if you will. But yeah, I I, I didn't like it a whole lot. Um, I watched uh, a couple of things. I re-watched Anvil, the story of Anvil. And for those that don't know, Anvil is and was this metal band from the 80s from Canada that didn't quite make it. And this documentary was made by someone that loved the band and went back and found them. And it, it you don't have to like the music. You don't have to like that genre to to fall in love with it. It's still, you know, it won all sorts of awards and it actually resurrected their careers as a, uh, as a musical act. And, uh, it still has wonderful, wonderful heart. And, um, so I, I recommend it, uh, if you, uh, if you can watch it, like I said, whether you like the music or not. So I went back, that was the only thing that really stood out to me. I know we're going to probably talk some more later on in the pod about, um, Documentaries and things that we are uh, 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 that we are watching, but right now that's the one that uh, that stood out. Should we like this candle, my friend? Let's do it. All right, where should we start? Because we have a bunch of things. As you mentioned, we did that uh, that's, that spaces yesterday, but still stuff has happened. And I, I think there's still some meat on the bone, if you will, when it comes to this national team.
2: Yeah, the way Sean Sullivan has structured today's pod, the first segment will be still wrapping up the international window. The second segment will be previewing club stuff this, from this upcoming weekend. And we'll begin with the U.S. national team. Uh, they went... and in this window, fell to Germany 3-1 in Connecticut, and then beat Ghana 4-0 in Nashville in front of dozens of fans. Um, And (laughs) as you mentioned, we did a Twitter Spaces last night, but now that you've been able to sleep on it, you had a little breakfast this morning, went for a run, uh, mixed it up on Twitter. Any new thoughts you have on this window?
1: Uh, Look, I I don't want to be a grumpy old guy, okay? This morning, when I woke up, and in the cold, harsh light of day, looking back on it, I, I wasn't—I I wasn't disappointed in the game against Ghana. I don't think anybody could be. It was from start to finish a, you know, shellacking of Ghana. I was disappointed in the Ghana that showed up, this particular Ghana team, because I don't think it gave the U.S. the type of competition that a lot had anticipated, and so there is a part of me, Mossy, that doesn't even want to assess this window in terms of Ghana. And maybe I'm not being fair to Greg Berhalter and this team, because they played very, very well uh, against bad competition. But again, I go back to what I said yesterday on the the X's show, Spaces. This is about being able to compete against the elites. And this game against Germany I think, should serve as a touchstone and as a reminder of still how far this team has to go. And so when I am assessing this window, I almost just want to look at the Germany game and completely throw out Ghana. And again, maybe that's that's not fair. But if I'm assessing this window like that and it's just about Germany, then this team as a whole Gets a C. This team, uh, Greg Berhalter, if you do want to do individual stuff, gets a C. Maybe a C, maybe a C minus. And you know, I'm not going to go through the uh, the whole thing. I don't think anybody hurt themselves in the eyes of Greg Berhalter or in the eyes of the American fan out there with these uh, with these two games. You know, I think you know people. Obviously, Gio Reyna is going to be a big story, and rightfully so. And I think he comes out smelling much better than when he went in. I don't think that your boy Johnny Cardoso did himself any fa- uh, any favors, um, but I don't think it, it, he played poorly enough where you're never going to bring him back. I don't think, like I said, I don't think anybody did in uh, in these two games. What would you give this team in terms? Of, and, that, and so, but if I add the Ghana piece in, then it's still, and it's still probably it, it goes up to a B minus, maybe a B.
2: I think this window illustrated this larger dilemma we've been talking about. The U.S. has had a point now, talent-wise, where against most teams in the world, they can go out, play proactively, and win. But there's still a select few teams out there that their better path towards getting a result against those teams is playing more pragmatically. However, Greg Berhalter thinks ultimately for the US to become, you know, a team that could win World Cups, they need to be able to play proactively against everybody. And so he doesn't want to deviate from that path too much because he's trying to establish that and cultivate that as the identity in the way the US is going to play from this point forward. So, yeah, in the short term, there are going to be some frustrating games like that Germany game where you're sitting there thinking, oh, we're so wide open and I just want to see us win a game like this. And the better strategy today would have been to play more pragmatically. But Greg Berhalter is taking a longer view. He wants the U.S. to get to a point someday where they can play proactively against these teams and beat them. So it's an interesting I, I, dilemma. I know. And you're,
1: you, you framed it perfectly. And it should be said, you know, if I'm coming off of half, half glass empty here in the terms of half glass full the teams that we're talking about right now, relative to the elites out there, I mean, it's not a lot of them. So where the U.S. is right now, it's not far off. But as we know, that last little bit is often the most difficult. And I think that's where Greg Berhalter and this team are right now, in that they can taste it, they can see it, at times they can even feel it but they can't quite get to that point where they, are, they have the stability of consistently beating those. As I said, let's—I mean, let's make it eight to ten types of teams that really on the day, from an individual talent perspective and collectively the way they play, are better than the U.S. Doesn't mean the U.S. can't beat them, but that's ultimately what the test and the challenge is for this team. And that's what's going to give them success, whether it's next summer in Copa America or whether it's uh, a couple of summers uh, from now in uh, in the World Cup.
2: Well, they do have to qualify for the Copa America first. Um, next up for the U.S. men in November, they'll play a two-legged tie against Trinidad and Tobago in the Nations League quarterfinals. Uh, first leg will be in Austin. Second leg will be in Trinidad and Tobago. And Where are they, they- going to play
1: that game, Mossy? in Trinidad?
2: I don't know, but you seem to think it would obviously be... Uh, ah, I mean, the
1: scene of the crime? Yes.
2: Um <laughs> uh, Well, if the U.S. gets past that, the quarterfinal winners clinch Copa America berths, and then even the quarterfinal losers then play, get paired up and play in playoffs to spit out two more teams because there's going to be six CONCACAF teams in the Copa America to go along with 10 Ball teams. Uh, I know for the foreseeable future, anytime the U.S. plays Trinidad and Tobago, people are going to evoke that disaster from 2017, but... Uh, I don't see any issues here. I'd be stunned if the U.S. doesn't walk all over no, I mean, team they, team. they
1: have to work to really mess this, uh, mess this up. I, although I will say, you know, the way that Ghana played against the U.S. W- was not... In the same way that I wanted the U.S. to play a, a more intelligent way and therefore more pragmatic way against Germany. If you're looking at Ghana, I almost wanted them to be more pragmatic and pull back and absorb pressure and get the U.S the opportunity to try to break them break them down. Because, you know, whether it's Trinidad and Tobago or other teams, they've played against the U.S. And while they might understand and respect that it's a quote-unquote better team, I don't think that they fear the U.S., but they are smart in the way that they play. And we are going to see this U.S. team in that position where I think they're going to have a lot of the ball, obviously a lot of the, uh, the possession and a lot of the chances, but they're going to have to find a way to break down much smarter types of teams. So in the International world of soccer. If you were to say Ghana relative to Trinidad and Tobago, the rankings would be there'd be a massive disparity. But the way in which Trinidad and Tobago will play against the U.S. is going to make the U.S. have to break them down. And on any given day, the soccer gods can smile on a team like that when you're bunkering and parking the uh, the bus there, and you can get a t- a result. Having said all of that, the U.S. should find a way through to obviously qualify for next year's Copa America. And if they don't, fire everybody on and off the field.
2: The other matchups, incidentally, in those Nations League quarterfinals, Mexico-Honduras, Canada-Jamaica, Panama-Costa Rica. Speaking of Mexico, they faced the same opponents as the U.S. in reverse. A 2-0 win over Ghana, Chucky Lozano and Antuna with the goals there. And then a 2-2 draw against Germany, a very entertaining game. Uh, Antuna and Eric Sanchez with the Mexico goals. Rudiger and Fulkrug scored for Germany. Uh, so what do you make of Mexico coming off this window?
1: I mean, I think Mexico can draw incredible positives in the results that they have, in the way that they played, and obviously against Germany. In the same way that I talked about really focusing in on the U.S.-Germany game, I think Mexico can really focus in and uh, draw inspiration from their uh, the 2-2 result against Germany. And I think Mexico is more desperate for these moments where they can latch on and say, hey, we are heading in the right direction uh, right now. But as far as the compare and contrast with the, uh, with the U.S. right now, just because you know, Mexico played Germany the 2-2 doesn't automatically you know, switch up the balance or anything like that. Yeah. I still think the U.S. is far and away a better team than Mexico.
2: I agree. I think the U.S. has a clear-cut better team right now. But I will say, after the U.S. thumped them in that Nations League semifinals, remember that how embarrassing that night was for Mexico, the fighting, the red cards. Yeah. I know people like Sean Sullivan and Kiara loved it, but us civilized folk <laughs> thought it was embarrassing. Yeah. Um, Mexico, they, they look very beleaguered, and they've gotten their mojo back a little bit. Now, the U.S. contributed to that by sending the squad they did to the Gold Cup. Mexico sent a better squad, ended up winning it. Uh, They made Jaime Lozano the full-time manager and pretty good window here. Gets a draw with Germany. Santi Jimenez scoring goals for fun at Feyenoord. Edson Alvarez playing well at West Ham. Feels like Mexico's getting a little bit of their swagger back.
1: You know, I think that, you know, we we talk so much about the plan up to 2026 for this U.S. team because they're not going to qualify. And uh, obviously, Mexico and Canada, which we'll talk about in a second, are in the same boat where they're not going to have that qualification process. And it still remains to be seen what it's going to look like in terms of that process and who they are ultimately going to play or be able to play going forward. But they're in the same mode that the U.S. is where they're scrambling around and looking for opportunities to, have, to be able to put their best foot forward come the summer of 2026. And it's not always going to be easy. So I think that th- this window for Mexico will be viewed, and I think fairly so, as more positive than this window for the United States.
2: Canada played one match and got thumped by Japan 4 one. I don't know what that does to Maru Biello's chances of getting the job full time, but yeah, Canada right now feel to, like they're in a real funk. huh?
1: I mean, how can Canada not get their you know what together? It's, and look, you can, you could, this was, uh, where, where was this game played? Because this, in Japan, in Japan. Away. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a great look, especially for a team. And, and again, it's all in the context of, how excited and positive everyone uh, was about this Canadian, and not just this team, but the direction that Canada supposedly was going. And I'm not saying it's all BS, but again, this, this seeming regression of Canada where they can't get themselves together on the field in terms of the play and off the field with all the drama that's uh, th- that's going on. And then you throw another uh, you know, loss into the mix, into the mix here. And as I said before, the U S Canada and Mexico all trying to figure out what they're going to do in this pathway up to 2026. Um, I mean, I, I just hope that we don't look back in 2026 at the qualification and winning CONCACAF, uh, winning the, uh, the octagonal as that was the brief shining, shining moment for Canada. And then they let it all get away. Because if you don't build on that type of success, and I know it's still early days, but in this last year, you could say not only have they not built on it, but you could say that they have regressed uh, up there in the great white north.
2: Can I geek out for a minute? Yes, of course. You don't Ah. need my permission. I am buying some Japan stock right now. Ooh, okay. Remember, they beat the U.S. 2-0, played them off the field in one of the last friendlies before the World Cup. We all focus on the U.S. performance that day, but the flip side of it was Japan looked like a really good team. They promptly went out, beat Spain and Germany at the World Cup, won that group, then tied Croatia in the round of 16, went out out on penalties, and off to a great start in this cycle, scoring goals for fun. Uh, They beat Peru 4-1. They beat Turkey 4 2 They beat Germany 4-1, the game that got Hansi Flick fired. And now they beat Canada 4-1. You look at that squad. There's a lot of pedigree. Endo, who plays at Liverpool. Tomayasu, who plays at Arsenal. Minamino, former Liverpool. is now at Monaco playing alongside Balligan. You've got Kamada at Lazio. You've got Mitoma at Brighton. You've got Kubo at Real Sociedad. So they've got a proper team. They've got a lot of guys.
1: All right. So you're, you're buying it now. You're buying stock when it comes to uh, Japan going forward. I am. Uh, all right, cool. All right, you heard it first here. Uh, by low, at, well, it's not, not so low, because Mossy just laid out all of the good things, uh, all the good things that are happening, and they are on the ascension.
2: Yes. Uh, one country that's not at the ascension is Brazil. Uh, can we s- shift gears <laughs> to Carmebol? <Colmabal? laughs> yeah,
1: Because this is, you geeked out before. Now you're just going to, you know, uh, wallow.
2: Yeah, this was a disastrous window for Brazil. A 1-1 home draw against Venezuela and then a 2-0 defeat away to Marcelo Bielsa-managed Uruguay. Darwin Nunes with a goal and an assist. This result snapped Brazil's 37-match unbeaten run in World Cup qualifying. It was their first defeat to Uruguay in 22 years since 2001. And then to add insult to injury, Neymar uh, picked up a knee injury, which we've now come to find out is a torn ACL it's going to be out many, many months. Uh, who knows when he's going to come back? We, yeah, I mean, even, we've even had some preliminary conversations about Copa America promos, whether we need to take him off those. Oh, it's I mean, yeah, because
1: theoretically, I mean, I guess he could be back by then. But, I mean... So, we've talked over the last couple of months about your Brazilian team and the flux that it's in and the, you know, the strange <laughs> situation with coaching and all that. When it comes to Neymar, and I, I think... I. I I talked to you about this. I remember that while he gets plenty of criticism and crap, the reality is that he is an incredible player, still is an incredible player. And for Brazil, they still don't have anything like him. But is this a situation where either secretly or publicly you or other Brazilian fans are saying, "Eh, you know, maybe this is addition by subtraction. Maybe this now spreads the wealth out. Maybe this provides a better balance going forward. And this gives a a runway, if you will, to Brazil to maybe do some different things after being so locked into what Neymar is.
2: Yeah, I mean, Vinicius was absolutely dreadful in these two games. And there's a feeling that when he's playing alongside Neymar, that it inhibits him, that he's too deferential to Neymar. And yeah, I do think there's a potential benefit in creating the space, the conditions for other players to assert themselves so that if Neymar comes back later in the cycle, you know, he's sort of part of a collective. back into collect something that, that's, yes.
1: you know, moved along. And-
2: um, so yeah, we'll see. I, th- the fact that Neymar, to your point, the fact that Neymar f- being out still feels like such a monumental loss is a problem in and of itself because he's at a stage in his career where he, it shouldn't all revolve around him still and yet you still feel like it does. So that's a problem. The other thing too, as uh, we've discussed, this coaching situation is farcical, where you you have this handshake agreement with Ancelotti, where you're hoping he's going to honor it and, and show up in the summer of 24, <laughs> but that's not even a done deal, and you've created this 18-month gap from the end of the last World Cup to when Ancelotti would take over, and so it, it it's just so bizarre. The guy that's in there right now is doubling up between Fluminense and Brazil, so In between international windows, he's not really scouting other leagues or thinking about the team and thinking about tactical variations and upcoming opponents. Instead, he's off coaching a club team. And then even, you know, the the Brazilian calendar is very punishing. So even from a club perspective, the international breaks are a chance to take a deep breath and think about the team and, and changes you might want to make. But he's off coaching Brazil. So both sides are getting hurt, the club team and Brazil. And this guy, you know, there's this expression in football, if you have two quarterbacks, you have none. And I feel like, you know, if you have two coaching jobs, you have none because how can you possibly give either of them the, the necessary attention? So
1: Now, listen, you're still in third place. I mean, are we bearing the lead here, uh, Lavino Tinto? I mean, listen. I, w- I was going to talk okay. about that. You know, I mean,
2: we, we've we been cracking jokes about the expanded field and how potentially seven of the 10 teams could make it, and, and how that's a little ridiculous. But one of the great beneficiaries that could be Venezuela, they actually have a pretty good team. They're off to a strong start. They are the only CONMEBOL nation uh, never to make a World Cup. So they could put that to rest that would be in 2026. Awesome. I think that
1: would be awesome to, to to see something like that. And I think your Brazil team's going to be fine.
2: Although, can can I go on a rant here about our colleague Francis Arthur?
1: Oh, yes. I mean, like you need my permission to do that. I mean, she's had it coming for a while. So yeah. go, go.
2: So she is one of these individual player sycophants. She's a Messi fan above any club or country. She masqueraded as a Barcelona fan for years, Mm -hmm. but ever since he left, she doesn't give a crap about Barcelona anymore. And she's Venezuelan. They have a legitimate shot to qualify for their first ever World Cup. And we asked her the other day, when Venezuela plays Argentina, if Messi is on the field, who would you root for? And she said, that's a tough one.
1: Yeah, right? That's disgraceful. Preach, my friend. Preach, my friend. It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just... Uh, I mean, they, I'm talking about uh, Venezuela, they deserve not only the Venezuelans' uh, support, I think all of our support and respect for what they are. And I think it would be wonderful in this age of the expanded World Cup to actually, as you say, have teams that have never been before. I mean, can you imagine Venezuela walking onto the field and putting putting their hand over their heart and singing the anthem I would hope that Francis and others would be tears streaming down their face, singing along. But who knows?
2: Who knows? Uh, speaking of Messi and Argentina, uh, they continue to roll four wins out of four in this qualifying campaign. In this window, that 1-0 home victory over Paraguay Otamendi with the only goal. Messi did not start that match. He did start the second game away to Peru and promptly scored two goals, which moved them past Luis Suarez. He's the all-time leading scorer in CONMEBOL World Cup qualifying. Uh Argentina, so he's not Looking very strong Messi's now. not hurt, right? Okay, good. Uh, Next month, uh, Brazil hosts Argentina at the Maracanã. Brazil has never lost a home World Cup qualifier. It's one of their proudest records. Uh, That is in serious jeopardy, my friend, because Argentina and the form they're in with Messi, um, I I think you'd have to make them clear favorites right now in that game, even though it's in Brazil.
1: And look, Argentina, what are they? uh, They're they're sitting.
2: They're going to clinch a spot pretty soon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they're flying. (laughs) Look at this. Oh, my goodness. All right. So. They could, And they could make history if they go in. It's at the Maracanã, right? Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I'm, Messi's probably licking his chops. That would be another little feather in his and, cap. And
2: Argentina won in their last visit to the Maracanã game. We covered that Copa America final in 2021. Oh, my goodness. All right, what else? All right, so we have the Copa America next summer. We also have the Euros. Uh, We transition to that. Euro qualifying. uh, We're up to nine teams, including host Germany, who have uh, punched their ticket to Germany next summer. We'll begin with the team that Argentina beat in the World Cup final, France. Uh, They clinched the berth on Friday with a 2-1 away win over the Netherlands, a match we covered on FS1. Kylian Mbappe scored both goals, and he put on a performance, one of those that even the casual fans. Uh, Fox Sports executive Brad Zager was running into the control and excitedly talking about how much better Mbappe is than everybody else. He really does give off this LeBron circa 2007 vibe of just being bigger, stronger, faster than everybody else in the field. I was
1: just talking to Judy Boyd. We talked about her, another uh, Fox executive, who is just enamored by anything French. And obviously Mbappe, she follows the French team on Instagram. And, you know, she actually put it pretty succinctly as to why there is this attraction. It's this beautiful arrogance. And I think Mbappe epitomizes it. And let's be honest, it's a, it's a trait that goes back to Thierry Henry and, and others, you know, and they, they ooze this arrogance that on the surface can be kind of, uh, can, can kind of put you off. And yet, you're drawn to it. And it's, it's, uh, it's powerful. And right now, Mbappe, you know he uh, he has that moments where if a if a foul is called that he doesn't like, either on him or around, there's this indignation in the way that he holds himself and the way that he that he acts. In that he is above everything. And let's be honest, he is above everything. He's arguably the greatest player in the world right now. Feeling it uh, with his uh, with his national team, and uh, you know we were doing the uh, the Italy England game, which I know we'll talk about here in a second, but. Warren Barton, immediately when asked, even with his English uh, you know, hat on, immediately when asked, he went, hey, France right now uh, is uh, is your favorite. And they keep playing like this, and Mbappe stays healthy, knock on wood, uh, they would absolutely be uh, the favorites for next summer.
2: Uh, the two goals against the Netherlands moved them past Michel Platini into fourth place on France's all-time scoring list. He then scored another one from the penalty spot in a friendly against Scotland. Now, the all-time leader Giroud is still active in scoring goals, so it's a moving target, but Mbappe will get there fairly soon. He's 24 years of age, and he's already moving up those France scoring charts.
1: All right, should we talk about uh, my friends the English?
2: Yes, Uh, so that was the other game we covered. Tuesday on FS1, England qualified for the Euros thanks to a 3-1 win over Italy at Wembley. Italy actually took the lead through Scamacca, but then England scored three unanswered. Uh, I thought they looked amazingly impressive. Frankly, a lot of the stuff we just said with Mbappe applies to Jude Bellingham, just yep. a guy that just looks better than everybody else in the field, the way he moves. Uh, Kane, sensational. He scored two goals. Rashford with a beauty. Uh, England firing and all the cylinders. Yes, right
1: they are. And and the smile on Warren Barton's face was incredible. And kudos to this England team. I got a question for you. Because so yeah. you, you mentioned, you know, peek behind the curtain not that much of a peek because it's it's obvious but when we're promoting and we're marketing games obviously we promote around stars and we want as many stars as possible when it comes to these big tournaments that we're doing uh you know so you're talking about obviously Cristiano Ronaldo from a Portugal perspective and we just talked about Mbappe from a France perspective because I was going through this and normally with a team like England the player that we would put there and the face that we would put there and the name that we would promote would be Harry Kane,
2: but... already had this exact conversation with Zach Kenworthy Do we need to change that to Jude Bellingham. Right? I mean, that's how
1: quickly he has come on. I was talking to someone off camera, you know, explaining this trajectory. And also the surprise that that you and many others uh, have had, including myself, about his consistency and how he hasn't fallen off the pace. And then you start to hear him talk about the experience, and he is taking a, you know, the road less traveled, if you will, relative to English players. And he is lighting it up with Real Madrid, and that he is doing it at Real Madrid, I think makes a huge, huge difference in the eyes of the world, and even in the, uh, the way the English see him right now. It's fun to watch, and I- I'm-, I'm telling you right now, come next summer, if you can only put one face up there, it might be Jude Bellingham.
2: Yeah, the Argentina-France final was obviously the most exciting game of the last World Cup. The most well-played game, in my opinion, was that France-England quarterfinal, which France won 2-1. I thought France and England were clearly the two best European teams at this last World Cup, and I think they're going to be the two favorites going into this Euros. Uh, Both teams looking very, very strong.
1: And look, if if they can get Rashford back on course and he you know he looked great because remember when rashford first hit the scene sure, yeah. and he was just incredible and look it was there was stuff going on with covid and it was all the stuff off the field that that he was doing and i'm not saying that that you know was uh the problem but he did have a dip and look young player gets a lot of attention and even attention beyond the soccer world for uh, all the stuff that he is doing that'll probably affect anybody. And so maybe it was a understandable dip. But if if he is coming out, especially at this time when this England team is flying right now, uh, that bodes well for for his future and obviously for England's future next summer.
2: Yeah, I agree. That front four of Foden, Rashford, Bellingham, and Kane was amazing. They need to upgrade that Calvin Phillips spot. Um, I was talking about that with Warren Barton. I even suggested, why not play John Stones there since he's been playing in the midfield for Manchester City, but as Warren pointed out, then you'd create a hole at center back, so you have to figure out who the replacement would be there. But that—that's the one weak spot. Obviously, Declan Rice is terrific, but that other central midfield spot is a bit of a question mark. And now either Jordan Henderson or Calvin Phillips, to me, neither one is good enough at this point to be. Champagne starting.
1: problems, buddy. Champagne problems. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Greg Burhalter would would love to have those problems.
2: By the way, to your point about players to promote, uh, we've made the decision to take Erlen Holland off any kind of euro promos they still have an outside shot via the playoffs that could get into based on their nations league placement but it does look like he's going to miss out another major tournament which is a shame because that's a player that we'd love to be able to promote and we did for a while but at some point you got to move on and put players on a promo that are you're likely to actually be at the tournament
1: who was i talking with about The designated player was was that with you? What we were talking about? Yeah. Where was that? Where was it? It
2: was Warren and I when you were on the desk. That's right. Exactly.
1: Okay. So I I think this is fascinating, though. So, and um, it's interesting because sometimes when non-soccer people uh, that don't follow the game come into it, and even you know people within Fox, they have a million other sports and things that they are doing, and they ask questions that get to the core of things and sometimes stuff that either we haven't asked or we should be asking more and you know, their question is look you've told me as a soccer person how good Erlen holland is and we all understand that he is arguably one of the, not arguably but he is one of the great players in the world and yet the chances of seeing him at a big tournament because of who he plays for internationally are diminished and We've talked about whether that's right or fair. That's, that's irrelevant. But what, what if you gave every team that made a tournament one designated player to pick from the field of players who play for international teams that don't make the tournament? I know this is all a hypothetical and it wouldn't happen. And I, I even have problems of it, but I'm, I'm going to go with it here. And you were able to, if you had the first pick, and and Erlen Holland is not going to the tournament, say, hey, you can come, come play for us. I think that would be amazing. It would be amazing theater. Oh, we could sponsor the hell out of that. We could make some <laughs> money. Oh my goodness. But you'd also have to be strategic because as good as he is, you know, if you're France or somebody else, you might say, no, we might take somebody else that really fits. Or England, like you said, in a more midfield type of position, maybe, hey, that's what really makes us the, the team that we want to be. Never going to happen, but let us know, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you think that that, that is even... Uh, if, if, you, if you like the idea, and secondly, who should take Erling Holland if they had the first pick?
2: Can I go back to Mbappe for yeah. one second? As long as we're already blowing up the time of this segment. Eh, whatever. Um, I was thinking about this. Hypothetically, let's say he never wanted to leave France, stayed at PSG the rest of his career, playing in Ligue 1, never won a Champions League title. Mm-hmm. Um, could he still enter the GOAT conversation based purely on his international credentials. Keep in mind, this is a guy that scored 12 goals in the last two World Cups. He scored in a World Cup final at 19 and scored a hat trick in the next World Cup final. He's already one of five players in history to score in two different World Cup finals. The, he's at 12. The all-time record is 16 Miroslav Klose. So very good chance in 26. He becomes the all-time leading scorer in World Cup history. He's already won it. Let's say he wins a Euros. Top scores there. Could we get to the end of his career? And say, based purely on what he did for France, this guy needs to be part of this discussion, or do you think he does have to go to Real Madrid or a big Premier League team and be playing week in and week out at that level and winning Champions League titles as well and have the club component to go with it?
1: Well, isn't that what we do with Pele? Yeah. I mean, so why should he be any different? I mean, notwithstanding Santos and, 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 and Cosmos where he had success, but let's be honest. When we talk about Pele as the GOAT it's relative to what he did at the, <laughs> with Brazil at the World Cup. Nobody's ever talking about the other, the other things. So I know it was a different time and a different era. But yes, I do think that Kylian Mbappe, provided he continues on and he's constantly planting that seed of, hey, here I am with France and this is what I can do, even though I don't have the, uh, the club accolades. Uh, uh, titles and trophies over there. So yeah, I think you can do
2: that. And last thing, Portugal, by the way, have been lights out in qualifying and Ronaldo continuing to score goals. He initially wasn't in our promos for the Euros. And then I spoke up, I said, wait a minute, you know, Ronaldo's still going strong. Why aren't we promoting him as well? And so we included him in the graphic. But yeah, now Portugal, they landed in a very easy group. Their Euro qualifying schedule has been like Michigan's football schedule. Well, so I don't want to do too here much we Here we but, go, here we go. All right, that is that.
1: Uh, Before we go, uh, any other players that we are thinking about promoting now as more of these teams actually qualify?
2: (laughs) It's funny that we've made a whole topic. It's
1: like this is, people are interested in this. And if they're not, they can click off. It's okay. All
2: right. So what happened was we can include four guys on a graphic. So originally the four guys we were promoting for the Euros were Mbappe, Kane, Lewandowski, and Holland. Then I spoke up and said, why aren't we promoting Ronaldo? Zach Kenworthy agreed. So we took Lewandowski off so then, it became Mbappe, Kane, Ronaldo, and Holland. Now, because Holland is probably not going to make it, and be, we wanted to include a guy from a team that's already clinched the berth, so we replace him with Lukaku, because Belgium have already made it. But to your point, I've already had some preliminary conversations with Zach about maybe Kane needs to be Bellingham. So stay tuned. That well, might you think. let
1: us know. Do our work for us here. I mean, what would <laughs> uh, what would tickle your fancy if you saw the the uh, the graphic up there? and McDominay or whoever, who would you want up there that would say, you know what? I want to tune in and I want to watch these games. I want to tune in and I want to watch this, uh, this tournament on Fox. You let us know uh, and we'll pass it along to our, uh, our superiors going forward. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, oh yeah, it's
0: decision day for MLS. Don't go anywhere. Getting ready to take on spring? Okay, welcome back.
1: Yes, it is time for uh, Decision Day. MLS Decision Day is upon us, Masi. So we're going to go through all the different scenarios that are happening. Uh, Keep in mind that we are recording this on uh, Wednesday afternoon, October 18th. There is one game tonight that has um, ramifications uh, in this conversation. So how do you want to lay this out, Masi?
2: All right, let's start with the Eastern Conference. And for those of you watching us right now, let's take a look at the Eastern Conference standings. Okay, so we have one,
1: two, three, four, five teams vying for the two
2: so it's, spots. So the top seven teams have clinched birth, And it's a little funky right now because yep. you see D.C. United above the playoff line. But they've actually been eliminated because they've played all their games. And the fact that NYCFC plays Chicago in the decision they one of those teams has to get above them. Now, as you mentioned, we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Inter Miami hosts Charlotte tonight. If Charlotte were to win that game, they would move all the way up to eighth, and they would, that would eliminate NYCFC. So we'd have one less team uh, going to decision day in the mix. Uh, but so, yeah, you have uh, Montreal. Um, they play away to Columbus on decision day, so they're trying to hold on to a playoff spot. The Red Bulls, who, remember, have made the playoffs 13 straight seasons. They're trying to extend that streak. They're away to Nashville on Decision Day. Then you have NYCFC hosting Chicago. And then you have Charlotte facing Inter-Miami again. And Messi, by the way, after the Argentina game, was interviewed on the field, and they asked him about, well, your season being over. And he said, no, 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 I got one more game. So he is planning to play that Decision Day match. So that's bad news for Charlotte. So he
1: will play this weekend in their game. Yes. Uh, And that game is in Charlotte. Correct. Okay. The game tonight is in Miami. Then the game this weekend is Charlotte. Well, I'm sure... From a competitive standpoint, it's not the best of news for Charlotte. But from a financial standpoint, it probably has, you know, increased the ticket price and the amount of tickets that are being bought for that uh, game, which potentially, well, it's definitely the last game that we will see of, my, uh, of Messi in 2023, and potentially it's the last game for Charlotte. But as you, you, know, as you mentioned, this musical chairs uh, that involves NYCFC, Charlotte, Chicago, Red Bulls uh, and Montreal for these last two spots uh biggest I think if NYCFC fails to make this uh, fails to make it, I think that would probably be the biggest disappointment uh the biggest surprise is if somehow Chicago finds a way into uh, the playoffs here and yeah, so that's uh that's what we will uh, we will be looking for um the games all year have been relatively played at the uh at the same time which will happen again uh this weekend when they uh, when they take place and there will be people with you know, radios and televisions and updates as it goes on and goes back and forth
2: uh, your comments about mls losing visibility on apple actually got picked up in a lot of places world soccer really? talk ran a piece about it what yeah. did, uh,
1: i can't remember what i said what did i say well i mean i, I it's it, you know, it's, it's based on the experience over this last year. It's not a shot necessarily uh, at anybody. And look, I'm sure if the MLS folks were here, they would say, well, this is why it has gone well. And this is why this was a smart thing, uh, smart thing to do. But I can't be the only one that feels that, that MLS 2023 is a different type of experience and a different type of feel than 22 through. Uh, 1996.
2: All right. uh, Let's uh, transition to the Western Conference. Let's take a look at those standings right now. All right. So you'll notice the top six have made it Um, Portland, San Jose, Dallas, the last three in. Um, the two teams out that can still make it uh, SKC and Minnesota, but they play head-to-head, so they can't both win. So if that game ends in a draw, then that's it. The nine that are above the line now will stay the nine. But if there's a winner in that SKC Minnesota game, that team could potentially leapfrog any of Portland, San Jose, or Dallas if those two teams screw up. Uh, uh, Portland home to Houston, San Jose home to Austin, Dallas away to the Galaxy. And
1: you mentioned the, the mindset of a game that you have to win. And not just you have to win, but the opposition has, uh, has to win. It's kind of like the, um, you know, the velodrome where they do the, uh, the bicycles and it's all real slow and slow. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden something kicks in. Well, when is that moment in the Kansas City versus Minnesota game? When does that kick in? Is it right from the beginning, uh, the kickoff? Or do you wait and bide your time and then go balls out, guns blazing at a, at a, cer- uh, at a certain point? Because there also comes a point where you have nothing to lose, you're not going to make it, and the point doesn't do you any good, and obviously the loss doesn't do you any good. that's the game that's the game that I want to watch. that's what i want that's what i want to see. Two teams that are fighting for their playoff life and they can't rest on anything other than a win, and they have to decide how much or little to uh to risk in that moment. Ah well, I can't wait, can't wait for that one uh what what other uh, what other stuff here do you uh do you like in terms of this? I mean ultimately, do you think Dallas and San Jose are kind of backing into the playoffs. Portland, I mean, that I think they're heading in the right direction. And we talk so much about having momentum and a positive energy into uh, into the playoffs. And while strange things happen, it's not a, it's not necessarily a crapshoot when it comes uh, when it comes to the playoffs. So you think that Kansas City or Minnesota get in?
2: Yeah. I think there's a winner in that game. And I think MLS being MLS, one of those three, Portland, Dallas, or San Jose will screw up and figure out a way to lose their last game. And I'll tell you, if it's Dallas, that would be a bitter disappointment because they uh, played at home to Colorado over the international break and could have sealed the deal there and were held to a one, one draw there. And then if they screw up against the galaxy, I mean, that, that would be a a terrible end to the season to blow a playoff spot.
1: By the way, if you are a, coach searching for a job in mls there's gonna be a lot of openings this offseason <laughs> my goodness all right anyway it's gonna be a fun-filled uh, weekend uh, like i said decision day with all sorts of stuff on the line and that music will stop some of these teams will have seats and some won't and in not having that seat uh your season will be looked at as a failure and rightfully so just be thankful that you don't have relegation to uh stare at anything else mossy
2: uh, nothing on MLS. Okay. In terms of Europe this weekend, uh, on Friday in Germany, Borussia Dortmund host Werder Bremen. Now, it's a quick turnaround for yeah. Gio, so the international break might compromise him here. But generally speaking, this is what I'll say about Gio. He played in the last match before the international break, came on against Union Berlin, played about 25 minutes. He now played in both U.S. games and was on the field for 45 minutes each time. So... Uh, He may not have 90 minutes in him. So if we're talking about starting versus not starting, then fitness might still come into play there. But at this point, any match he doesn't play in, I'm not going to chalk it up to fitness anymore. That's a coaching decision because as far as as I can tell, he's ready to play, even if it's just a super sub role, which is a role where he excelled in late last season. So they should be wanting to take advantage of that. So it's going to be interesting to see moving forward his role for Dortmund.
1: Yeah, I I think even when he was not starting, this was coaching decision. Um, And... I guess the the best that we can hope for is that he comes back reinvigorated or energized even more. And obviously having played, you know, not 90 minutes, but having played two games, having played well in both of those games, having scored goals. And he just, I guess from a personal perspective, feels good in that moment. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to get picked and you don't mess with this uh, right uh, right now, but I... I don't know. I mean, I think it goes back to what we were talking about in that there's the national team right now that might, and we've seen this with other players, become an oasis for Gio and an escape, if you will, where he is much more, I guess, respected and loved relative to playing and and contributing to the team. And if that continues on, then yeah, to your point, it's not about him being injured. It's just about... This is not going to be a place where he's going to start. And that might become a problem, who knows, January window uh, or next summer uh, for a possible move if it doesn't change. And it would be a long year if it doesn't change.
2: By the way, his former Dortmund teammate Jude Bellingham uh, on social media was celebrating Gio's performance for the U.S. So I guess those two have remained friendly.
1: It's good to have friends in high places like that.
2: Yes. Uh, In Italy, the big one this weekend, AC Milan will host Juventus. That's first against third. Now, again, we don't know how the international break is going to compromise the involvement of all the Americans. When do they get back? How many training sessions do they get in? But it feels plausible that all four could start. And if that's the case, would this be an, an, an absolute watershed moment in Yank's abroad history to have? a game of this magnitude involving these two clubs and having four Americans starting two on each side?
1: Yeah, it would. <laughs> it would be pretty awesome. Um, and I think just the, you know, just the tactical of looking at it should make you proud of, of what has happened. Now, th- that it's happening at a time where Syria, ah, is populated by, you know, a lot of international talent and talent outside of Italy. And at the time where the Italian national team is not qualifying for the last World Cups, I mean, does that tarnish it a little bit? I I I don't think so. I think I mean, I I really hope that there's not one guy that's not playing. I hope they're all there. I hope that they're all starting. I hope that they all got back and that they are good from the international break, and that they rested on the plane, and that they are good to go, and that they are tapped to uh, to start this game. Because just just in a general sense, it's a great game. But to have not just Americans, but that amount of Americans,
2: yeah, I think it'd be a part of uh, a part of American soccer history. And we are talking Pulisic and Musa for AC Milan and McKinney and Wea for Juventus. I don't think I actually said their names, so I shouldn't okay. assume that everybody knows well, who we're talking right. about. But that's good. Yeah, so we'll keep an eye on that. And then lastly, the big one in the Premier League, Chelsea will host Arsenal. Chelsea have won three straight in all the competitions. They're showing some signs of turning a corner under Mauricio Pochettino, but this is the game where they can really underline that against Arsenal, who, remember, beat Manchester City right before the international break. So uh, we'll have an eye on that Chelsea-Arsenal game as Or well. they can
1: get their ass kicked. And then confirm a lot of people's belief that it's not as much of a turn of the corner as you might think.
2: Because of the one-two punch of the way Pulisic was treated there, and then that whole Tyler Adams guys in the summer, are Americans now hate watching Chelsea and rooting against that team?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, you, you know, we, we got Christians back. You, know, you you treated him like crap. Leeds United as well, and Leeds too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Leeds. I haven't even thought about Leeds. They're <laughs> still. Were, were they still play over there? What's going on? Yeah, <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, that is it. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, it's time for Ask Alexi. Ooh, I think we're going to give away some stuff. All right, don't go anywhere.
0: Okay,
1: welcome back. It's time for Ask Alexi, that part of the show where you send in your questions, comments, and concerns, and you can send them in on all the uh, social media platforms out there. And keep in mind that our handle is SOTU with Alexi, or you can call into our State of the Union podcast hotline, 657 549 2297. That's 657 549 2297. And we put the call out a few shows ago when we were celebrating our 400th episode of the State of the Union that we were going to give away some stuff. And we have a signed ball and a uh, denim replica signed shirt there. And listen, you guys, you were incredible. You responded an avalanche that producer Sean had to deal with, whether it was our uh, State of the Union podcast hotline or just the questions coming in fast and furious. So thank you. Um, obviously, not everybody can win. Only two can win. Mossy, I'm going to spin this up. I got We got a bunch of different winners in here or people that did send in questions, comments, concerns. Some, uh, as I said, like on the uh, the voicemail uh, and some on the uh, the handles out there. So I'm going to spin this up. We'll look this way. I'm going to put this in here. I'm going to let you from across pick. What do you got there?
2: Uh, the first one is a voicemail. Let's uh, take a listen right now.
0: Hey, Alexi. Hey, he's Angel from Northern Virginia back here to ask you guys a question again. I actually had a question. Uh, I saw this post on the U.S. Soccer page on Instagram, the Mount Rushmore of, you know,
1: U.S. soccer legends. Me, personally, for the men's side, uh, for my Mount Rushmore, I have you, Alexi. Um, I don't care what anyone says, hate all you want, but Alexi is definitely an icon. Um, So Alexi, and I have Landon Donovan, Clint Dempsey, and Casey Keller. Uh, Those are my Mount Rushmore guys. And also, um, I just want to say, Mossy coming November, Ohio State is definitely beating Michigan. Thanks, you guys. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Wow, that is awesome. Um well, first off, congratulations on uh winning the ball. Yeah, that uh, that's pretty pretty awesome, Angel. So, thank you for uh calling in and congratulations on winning the ball and thank you for the kind words. I'm I'm sure my wife uh if she listened or heard this uh would say that she loves you too because not only did you put me on the Mount Rushmore, but uh, you're also a big Buckeye fan. And uh, for those that have listened to the show for any length of time, you will know that she is the ultimate Buckeye fan out there. All right, so this is an evergreen type of thing. I've, I've tried to do this over the course of the years, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to think that Angel meant, uh, because what, if he gave us his Rushmore, that obviously this is from on the men's side here. And when I think about it, I... I try to do, I try to have different eras and different generations represented. And that's not always easy to do. So I think in terms of, and, and I'm not talking, because I, I thought about, do I put like a Joe Gaijins or something like that? And, you know, that for a lot of soccer people is very obscure, okay? Why don't we
2: frame it as in the modern era?
1: Exactly, so modern era. So let's, let's say from 90, when when, uh, the U.S. returned to the World Cup until now. All right, so uh, he had Casey Keller. I'm actually going to go with a goalkeeper in Tony Miola, okay? Um, And I I don't have to have positions, but I just thought I'd do that. Then you get into my era, and I mean, look, I'm not beyond putting myself up there because I would be freaking awesome, especially, I mean, if you're going to chisel something out of uh, granite on the side of a mountain, I mean, the hair flowing down and the goatee, because that's the way you would have to present it. I would do that. But for this exercise, I will take myself out of the running. And so I'll put Kobe in there. So Kobe Jones. Uh, And Kobe kind of straddles into the next generation too. Uh, Then I'm putting Landon, and then I'm putting Clint. Now, if Christian Pulisic continues on, then I think that you're going to have to move somebody and make way for Christian Pulisic to uh, show up there. So, yeah, those are, those are my four right there. And I'd pr- you know, probably be driving home, A- uh, Angel, and uh, say, ah, oh, I should have done this or I should have done that. Uh, what would you put?
2: You mentioned Kobe Jones. He remains the U.S.'s all-time Caps leader at 164. He dodged two major bullets over the years, two guys that looked to be on pace to surpass him and didn't. One, Landon Donovan, who stopped at 157, in large part because Jurgen Klinsmann left him out of the 2014 World Cup, and Landon decided that. too. he did play a farewell game after that, but had he played in that World Cup and played well, he might have stayed on with the national team for a little bit longer, enough to surpass Kobe. The other one is a player who just announced his retirement, Michael Bradley, who uh, ended up with 151, And the U.S. not making the 2018 World Cup uh, hurt him because uh, he would have played in a bunch of games in the lead up to that tournament, then in the tournament itself. And then there might have been a better feeling around him entering that next cycle where he might have stuck around longer and and gotten more caps. instead. He did play uh, for the first several months of Greg Berhalter's tenure, played in that uh, Gold Cup in 2019. But then that was that for him. Uh, or I think he might have had a Nations League game against Canada in late 2019. That was his last cap. But you know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's, the U.S. missing out in 2018, I think, kind of fast-tracked to the end of his international career in a way that it might have otherwise gone differently.
1: Yeah, but I I also think about when I go to the average American out uh, there. Oh, I was not no, bringing no, up Bradley I, in the no, context no. I, of the rush. I, I, I just, do want to talk about Michael Bradley because yeah. I think this is a good good jumping-off point here um, because I, I think he deserves not just recognition, but uh, tribute. Um, when, when I say Tony Miola to people, I still think that it resonates, maybe not so much with the, with the newer and younger generation. But when I say Kobe Jones, Tony Miola, Landon Donham, and Clint Dempsey, even for people that don't know a whole lot about soccer, I think it triggers something. They might not even be able to place them. but So there is a relevance in terms of these names and what they did, because your Mount Rushmore should be I think about the impact that you made. So it's not just about how many caps you made. It's not just about how many games that you won. It's you know, did you did you change the face of the game in what you did on and off the field? And I think that this four does a good job of covering the different eras and that time frame, and each individually did things that hadn't been done yet and did things that cut through. Uh, the existing soccer world, and I guess the existing sports and cultural world that existed in those t- uh, different eras. When it comes to uh, Michael Bradley, uh, can, I get, can I take a couple seconds and uh, talk Absolutely. about Absolutely, yeah. All right, listen, I have known Michael Bradley since he was a teenager. Uh, I was the president of the Metro Stars back when he was a part of the Metro Stars. And uh, you could already tell that this was a player that was destined to be a professional soccer player probably couldn't tell whether he was a player destined to do all the different things that he uh, that he did. But on and off the field, he showed a maturity and he showed a a focus that you could not deny. And I think that he not only lived up to his potential, but even at a certain point surpassed his potential. And he had an eye to get to Europe. That was something that he wanted to do from an aspir- aspirational type of perspective. And keep in mind that while he was finishing up with the Metro Stars, it was only for a few years, I fired his father, who was the coach, which was Bob Bradley. And, you know, that's a difficult thing for any son, let alone a son that is playing for the Metro Stars. And yet his maturity and his professionalism in that moment said a lot about who he is as a man apart from who he is as a soccer player. And again, he was still a very young man at that time. And his pathway took him through, you know, all different countries and cultures and different leagues. And you know, whether it was Hermwien initially, uh, and using that as a platform uh, to go to Germany and uh, Munchen Gladbach, even a, a couple of games over there at Aston Villa, uh, then Kievo with his Italian adventure, and then Roma, you know, before it was du jour and before, you know, we just talked about the possibility of four Americans starting this weekend, uh, in A against each other, you know, Michael Bradley was doing it and it was, it was scorched earth after, uh, after I was there for a couple of years and Michael Bradley came in and not only did it, but you know, they, they, they wrapped their arms around him, not just his team, but the, you know, the people of Italy. And there's this bald, General running around the field, and and he really endeared himself to the country and culture, and to the sport, and started getting better and better and better each and every place that he went. And yes, he came back ten years ago to play in MLS, and I know a lot of people give him crap for that. But first off, he was offered a tremendous amount of money, and came back and contributed to not just Toronto but but MLS. And I think when all is said and done specifically as a player, what he has done should be celebrated and rightfully so uh, for a long time to come. The other part is I'm just as interested in Mike, what Michael Bradley is going to be going forward as I am in what he became as a soccer player. And as I said, I think he's made a lot of money. He could do anything right now. I think that obviously a lot of people have pointed him and predict that he is going to go into the, uh, the coaching managerial type of space. But, you know, it. Regardless of what he does, I think he will do it, like I said, with an intelligence um, and with a um, a maturity and most importantly, with a work ethic that comes from him. And obviously, I think is manifests in the family that he is from that will make him successful. And I look forward to seeing. And so congratulations, Michael Bradley. And more importantly, thank you. Thank you for everything that you have done for U.S. soccer. Uh, and the incredible career that you have had.
2: Before we move on, can I address the Ohio State-Michigan part? Yes, of
1: course. Uh, You weren't happy with uh, what Angel said?
2: Well, first of all, Ohio State has a big game this upcoming weekend, home to Penn State. Uh, We've got about a month left until the Ohio State-Michigan game, which is in Ann Arbor this year, November 25th. So we'll see where we are injury-wise. But right now, I disagree. I think Michigan is the better team. I think we're going to win.
1: So now Michigan is better than Ohio State. Yes. Before, you had said that Ohio State was better than Michigan.
2: No, what I I said was after they beat Notre Dame, give them credit for having a big non-conference win while Michigan played a joke non-conference schedule. So I would have ranked Ohio State above Michigan at that point. But just watching the two teams play, I test. I do think Michigan is the better team. Now, do you know what Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State all have in common?
1: Uh, Michigan State, Ohio State, or Michigan. Oh, well, two of them. No, no, I don't want, what do they have in common?
2: They're all unbeaten. Uh, Do you know who is not unbeaten anymore? USC. Oh, and and it's, wow. it's interesting because wow. th- there, wa- there was a divide in the USC fan base. Uh, <laughs> there, the John Marcus camp felt like, hey, we're winning. Stop complaining. That's all that matters. And there was the Aaron Schechter camp that was worried about the defense giving up too many points. That's not winning football. That's going to catch up to us. And Aaron Schechter proved to be correct because they went to South Bend this past weekend and got walloped by Notre Dame. So, so
1: Schechter check, right?
2: So now that their national championship hopes are up in smoke, she has a lot more time on her hands. She can watch this Air Bud Marathon that apparently is airing she on... She was very
1: excited about the Air Bud, uh, evidently, on Paramount+. Plus. The entire collection. It's much more than a trilogy. It's evidently, you know, it's, it's like Star Wars. There's all sorts of...
2: We'll have to get her to do a ranking at Perfect. Point, yeah.
1: There we go. Of all the Air Buds. Uh, okay, pick another one, my
2: friend. All right. Uh, bu, 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 bu. Yes, here we go. This is... Um, mike bensonhurst via apple pod reviews oh
1: he did an apple pod review i love it i love it Yeah, he
2: said that about our podcast you get well-informed analysis personality usmnt news and and their streaming recommendations which is sometimes my favorite part of the show so there's somebody that you know it's very polarizing some people hate that we do that other people love it
1: so evidently he he thinks he doesn't care for the soccer part of the show but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, maybe we should start a whole uh, review type of thing. By the way, this is... Uh, congratulations to him for winning the uh, shirt. This is for the shirt.
2: Although he does specify my questions are for Alexi, so I guess I'm not allowed to chime no, in. No, you can chime in. I, I,
1: I give you permission.
2: What is your favorite soccer documentary of all time?
1: <sighs> my favorite soccer... Well, you should definitely chime in. Um, okay, it probably would come down to three. Um, between three, and I'll give you my... So... We've talked about the Maradona HBO one, which I just think is incredible and so well done. Um, You know, one for the ages that has always gotten kudos is uh, the two Escobars. Um, And and again, it's so good that you don't have to even like soccer or even know anything about soccer to appreciate it. And then another one um, is uh, once in a lifetime the uh, Cosmos documentary. But if I had to pick one of those three, I I still think it's the two Escobars. When that came out, the amount of people that I had never talked to about soccer, and I just knew them socially or whatever, that watched it and were just amazed at the story that was going on. And And it It was so much more than just the actual soccer of it. Yeah, I think that that's the way that it was done, the story. So, yeah, I'd have to say The Two Escobars. From a soccer documentary perspective, what do you got?
2: In terms of standalone documentaries, I agree with your top two. The Two Escobars and the Maradona HBO. In terms of documentary series, I do think that Sunderland one was transcendently good.
1: That's true. That's that's a good one, yeah.
2: And, yeah,
1: I mean, I don't know what... But I'd still consider that a documentary, even if it has a bunch of episodes or something like that or a series. I still think that's a documentary. So I'm I'm good with that.
2: I didn't mention this in the What Are We Watching segment, but I did uh, uh, watch two episodes of Welcome to Wrexham this morning. So I'm now caught up on that. And yeah, you know, I know Stu mentioned uh, when he was on that he's kind of off it. Uh, Kardec Krishnair of World Soccer Talk wrote a piece recently still... Uh, gushing about it, saying season two has been every bit as good as season one. So there are other people that are still on the bandwagon. I'm still kind of sorting my thoughts on it. I mean, I, I still like it. I watch it. But yeah, there's, there's some bit of novelty has been lost in season two. So uh, but that would be up there as well. I think it's very well made. Very what is
1: good. uh, what's his name again? Uh, what is what does he uh, have? Does he have anything else?
2: Yes. Mike? Uh, he then asks, um, what's your favorite non-soccer sports doc of all time?
1: Non soccer sports doc, yeah. Oh, I thought uh, okay, because immediately I had all these documentaries come in, but non non soccer sports
2: doc, oh,
1: I don't know. Give me some uh, some examples. What, uh,
2: last dance,
1: yeah, I didn't like the last dance,
2: honestly. Uh, I would say OJ. O- OJ, OJ made OJ. in America, OJ. but I'm not even sure That's I considered a that a sports doc. documentary.
1: I mean. Yeah, I'm I'm going to I'm going to go with it. I mean, if I had to do like my my favorite doc no matter what, if it has nothing to do with sports and I know I'm going a little off of this thing. I mean, like let's see. Um oh my goodness. Uh what's the uh Oh, Paradise Lost. That one. Have you ever seen that one, Mossy? Oh, it no. is just nuts. The uh the child murders at Robin Hills. I mean, it, it is Robin Hood Hills. Oh, it's insane. It's insane. They actually did three of them ultimately. It, it but so that's that's one of them um let's see Manhunt uh you know a, a 9-11 one um about the inside story for uh, the hunt for uh for bin Laden and then there was one called uh my brother's bomber which was about the Lockerbie Pan Am uh bombing and this this man's brother had died on it, and he went around those are just in, in, incredible but yeah i i think yeah I think I would have to say the o j one,
2: yeah. I mean, o j to me, made in America is one of the best documentaries yeah. period I've ever seen. I think it transcends sports. So I'm even reluctant to include it in this category because I think it's, you know, it was much more than just a sports documentary you know i think about the espn 30 for 30s we've talked about this many times over the years but that june 17 1994 oh, yep. everything that went on that day i thought was incredibly well done really captured what a surreal day it was you're
1: a, a ken burns guy though didn't he do the uh the, didn't he do a pbs uh, baseball one or something like he that he
2: did yeah very good that's yeah. up there as well i mean that's like 16 hours it's almost <laughs> hard to even like <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, I love documentaries, and I, I we came on air, you know, talking about uh, you know the Anvil documentary and stuff like I, uh, I love them, and when they're done really, really well, to your point, they do transcend.
2: Uh, Mike Bensonhurst had a third question. Oh my goodness, really? Okay. If, well, look, he he won the
1: uh, the shirt, so he's got a little carte blanche. Here.
2: If the U.S. men's national team faced a top opponent such as Argentina, Spain, or Spain in a meaningful game. What tactics should we employ from an Exit and O's perspective, which gets at this conversation that we had at the top of this pod, we had on the spaces last night, so he can refer to that if he wants. But yeah, if you want to just give a quick sort of refresher of your views.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just think that there needs to be a recognition that for all of our efforts to be more progressive, to be more evolved, uh, to be more romantic in the way that we play, which are admirable and honorable in terms of pushing this team forward. There also has to be an understanding and I guess an intelligence of when to die on that hill and when not to. And so, um, and again, this is not about parking the bus. I think we're beyond that. But, and I guess it comes back to the guile that exists in some teams and some cultures out there. to. To suss out the situation very clearly. And you know, you've heard, you you were talking about, you know, Simeone talks about this and others talk about this, where your your desire to be viewed as pretty um, or beautiful or romantic, you can't let that override what the situation and the moment needs. And some of the best coaches in the world recognize that, you know what, I will live to fight another day. But in this moment, my team, and that's from the outside, the team also has to recognize that this is what we're going to do. And in doing so, we are doing what is best for the moment as opposed to what makes us look the best.
2: Can I go back to the previous question? Because I had a massive brain fart. Okay, go, go. Uh, Best non-soccer sports doc of all time. My pick would be Hoop Dreams. Have you ever watched this? Yes, of course.
1: Yeah, it's a classic. Yes. Yes. And that one, yeah, you were just left with your jaw on the floor going, oh, oh my God. Uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, and I'm sure. And listen, if you got some, uh, some uh, documentaries out there that you think that we missed, either we haven't watched or haven't seen or we just didn't bring them up, let us
2: know. Uh, now, Mike Bensonhurst did not, remember we said that you have to let right. us know how to right. contact you, so uh, Mike he's Bensonhurst. W- he's
1: won this, but getting it to him might be yes. a different story.
2: Uh, please, please reach out to our producer, Sean Sullivan, now, am I allowed to say Sean's email on the air here? Yeah. Isn't Sean worried that this is going to lead to just, uh, you know, whatever. The craziest, Whatever. Um, Sean at
1: no nope. Su- su- nope. Sean dot Sullivan.
2: Am I mis- Oh, I'm sorry. I'm re- misreading everything. Really. Yeah. Um, Sean.Sullivan at Fox.com. You know how emails work, right? Okay. Well, but no, but look, he put okay. Sean, <laughs> Sean at Sullivan on X. Oh, he was also giving his Twitter. Oh,
1: but put it. Yeah. If you want to yell at, at, uh, at Sean on, on X, do that at Sully V-O-L. That's for the volunteers, right? That, uh, oh by, my God. By
2: the way, I will never, ever, ever call it X. You won't? Why? That's that's the hill you're dying on, really? No, I just can't. I can't do it. It just Twitter is just stuck in my head.
1: That's what comes out. Oh, I know. It. I understand that, but you know uh, future generations will laugh at you um, <laughs> <laughs> all right listen thank you uh, to everybody that sent in questions uh, like i said whether it was on the state of the union podcast hotline uh, or on any of the social media platforms out there congratulations the ball and the uh, jersey will go out and we're going to have plenty of other stuff as we go along we're going to give out much more stuff going forward so just because you didn't win now doesn't mean that you uh, that, that you can't win but keep sending in those questions as we uh, go on we will get these uh, you know these prizes out to, uh, to the folks. And uh, we'll take a little break when we come back. It's the end of our show and I'll give you my one for the road. Okay, welcome back. It's the end of our show and at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking and kind of pushing things forward to the summer of 2026, which we know is going to be incredible and seminal when it comes to soccer in the United States and Canada and Mexico, when the U.S. Uh, and Canada and Mexico joint host the 2026 FIFA World Cup. And uh, the news coming out when it comes to this World Cup is constant. And, you know, it's it's all good because it's shaping up to be not just the biggest World Cup in terms of teams, but... You know, the biggest World Cup in terms of fans and uh eyes, and hopefully when it comes to uh excitement and I guess even travel and tourism vacation and all that kind of stuff, and ultimately celebration of this incredible spectacle that is the World Cup. You know, I, I do a lot of traveling, Mossy, and for years now the flight path for those that fly into Los Angeles takes you right over SoFi Stadium, one of the stadiums. Uh, that has been named for the World Cup in 2026. Now, when it was named, there was at the time, uh, along with all the other stadiums, uh, the you know the reality of the situation when it comes to SoFi Stadium. SoFi Stadium, did you know, Mossy cost 5.5 5 billion dollars to make? Stan Kroenke, who uh, owns the uh, what's the
2: football team that plays Rams,
1: the Rams in there, and uh, the other Chargers, so, the Chargers. Oh, right, right, uh, oh, right. Arsenal he owns. Yes, he owns Arsenal, too, Uh, as the uh, owner of this stadium. uh, Yes, it costs a lot, but it is going to make him and others a tremendous amount of money going forward. And it is absolutely beautiful. And I would fly in and I would see the construction as it almost a time lapse of it. Each and every time I would fly over, there was more and more done. And for those that uh, have been there, you, I think, will agree with me. And for those that haven't, I'm telling you right now, it is incredible it has all of the amenities and the luxuries that this generation now expects from their not just sporting experience in a stadium but their entertainment experience in a stadium including as many suites as you possibly want including suites at the field level and there was the understanding uh, when they were awarded that from a fifa perspective it was not built wide enough to accommodate what FIFA requires for a World Cup. Now, how that happened? (laughs) You would think at some point along the way that some architect, some sort of builder, hell, just somebody walking along, seeing some people look at plans would have said, hey, is, is this wide enough for a World Cup? And they would have asked the question. So all of that is to say that it is not wide enough as it exists right now. And so it is going to have to be retrofitted in order to accommodate it. The reason why I'm bringing this up is John Sutcliffe from ESPN had uh, talked about how uh, in some breaking news that this potentially could take a, uh, SoFi out of the running for the World Cup. Now, he has since taken down that tweet. I do think ultimately they are going to figure out a way to have the World Cup, uh, World Cup games be played in SoFi. But this is all about the deal. And this is all about cost. Let's be honest, because it's going to cost a tremendous amount to go up and out. And in doing so, you are going to uh, obviously go over those field suites and you are going to cut them out. And that takes not just the field suites, but that takes out money. Less sweets, less money. And that has to be a consideration for Stan Kroenke and for uh, FIFA going forward. But a World Cup not being in Los Angeles, second biggest city next to uh, New York, and with the incredible history that this city, and when I say this city, it's the entire metropolitan area here, the incredible history that Los Angeles has relative to soccer, including the 1994 World Cup final being played and the 1999 Women's World Cup uh, final being played here, it would be missing something. And I don't think necessarily FIFA wants to do that. However, we have also found that we are in a very different time And the world has changed, and the soccer world has changed, and the United States has changed. And when I think about Austin, and when I think about Cincinnati, and when I think about Nashville, and I think about these places that in the past weren't necessarily soccer cities, what a soccer city is, is changed. And so, while to me, having been around a long time, I can't fathom a World Cup being played in the US that doesn't involve Los Angeles, who knows? Maybe because times have changed it doesn't involve Los Angeles. Having said all that, I think something's going to get done. And I'll be really interested to see ultimately what that construction looks like, what that retrofit looks like. But if they can figure out a deal and they can figure out a way to work this, I think it'll be incredible. And I think the experience that people have going to that SoFi stadium, albeit in a retrofitted type of way, is going to be second to none. And I, just from a personal perspective, obviously living here in Los Angeles, I would love nothing more than the World Cup to include Los Angeles along with all of the other cities. But if it doesn't, I'm not going to be bent out of shape because I know that my country uh, has changed. And it doesn't matter ultimately where the World Cup games are played. This is going to be unlike anything has anybody has ever seen. It's going to blow 1994 and 1999 out of the water, whether it's in Los Angeles or not. So we'll see if they get their uh, their business together when it comes to SoFi and FIFA when it comes to the World Cup in 2026.
2: Well, first off, John Sutcliffe, don't take down your tweets; it ruins the show. <laughs> but uh, now you know from the beginning of this process, FIFA they it doesn't seem like they've been that into Los Angeles as like an absolute must. We covered the host city's announcement and we were hearing scuttlebutt leading up to that that Los Mm -hmm. Angeles might not get picked and then it ended up getting picked. But I I thought for sure it was going to be the final and then you started hearing, no, no, it's going to be AT&T Stadium or MetLife. And now you hear that L.A. might get bumped out altogether. So, I don't know. FIFA don't seem to view Los Angeles as an absolute must for this World Cup. Well,
1: I think that there is an ego and a hubris that comes from Los Angeles. And we're all here in Los Angeles. And we, I I think, would accept that. Um, However, you know, there are others waiting in the wings. Uh, and Las Vegas is just down the road. And I know they didn't get picked. By the way, their field also has to be retrofitted in order to accommodate the width. But that, I mean, I guess that leads to a bigger question is to how the hell in 2023 are we sitting here with stadiums that are $5.5 billion to build and they don't accommodate soccer, even if you just don't like soccer? and you think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world, just from a pure business standpoint, at some point, somebody should have said, hey, listen, boss, um, we need to have this thing to be able to accommodate soccer because there are going to be soccer games, big soccer games where we can make a tremendous amount of money and programming these stadiums is important. Now, they're going to make plenty of money no matter what, with or without soccer, but it would be very nice to see, uh, see them have soccer going forward. And I think that they'll figure it out. I think they'll They'll, uh, they'll come to some sort of a new agreement going uh, going forward. And not for nothing, but the Rose Bowl, the iconic Rose Bowl is still waiting in the wings also. But let's be honest. If, if SoFi is Taylor Swift, then the Rose Bowl is Madonna, okay? I mean, it's a different type in 2023 of um, uh, a different type of stardom and as iconic and historic as the Rose Bowl is it, is, it is past its prime. And I love it. Believe me, some of my greatest moments of my life have been in the, uh, in the Rose Bowl. But when you compare and contrast with what SoFi can give you, it's a whole nother level. And as I said before, it's what people expect now when they are coming into their sports environment and their sports entertainment. Anything else, my friend? That's it. All right, uh, we will be back again next week. We went a little bit long today, but uh, you know we'll give you a little bit more. And we, uh, you know, we had couple, we had three shows this uh, this week, Mossy. Uh, what do you got something to say?
2: Well, if anybody has any complaints about today's show, you now have Sean Sullivan's emails. So right. Just exactly. Pepper
1: him with... You can pepper him with all sorts of uh, inappropriate uh, comments. We will be back again next week. Thank you so much for reviewing and downloading and subscribing. Congratulations to those that won prizes. We will do more prizes as we go along. I was talking to Sean. We got all sorts of stuff up our sleeve when it comes to this new studio and things that we're going to do. We're going to throw some stuff at the wall. Some of it's going to stick. Some of it won't. But, you know, this is a, as we said before a work in progress and this is a laboratory right now that we are uh, that we are uh, you know putting some things together and some of it might work and some of it won't but uh it doesn't work without you so keep watching rating, reviewing subscribing downloading and doing all the different things that you do we'll talk again next week and until then as always my friends size the
0: day